Welcome to the first episode of The Public Narrative, A Word with Jamira Alexander. I'm your host, Jamira Alexander, and I'm so excited for this. I am the president and executive director of Public Narrative, a community media resource nonprofit based right here in Chicago that champions narrative change through workshops, training, programming, and research, building more authentic relationships between media makers, nonprofits, and you, the community. What makes this moment special is this new show has been long in the making for bringing CAN-TV and Public Narrative back together again as community partners. I can't thank CAN-TV's executive director, Darius Hillman, and his team enough for their support as we resurrect a longstanding partnership that once was in 2010, when we were formerly known as Community Media Workshop. A Word is the chance to bring different guests on the show that can help us better understand some of the pertinent issues our communities face when it comes to public safety, education, and health. And as it's Public Narrative's mission, we will intersect these conversations with our comprehension of media, particularly how media can affect the narratives that we see day to day in our local and even national headlines. We want to use this first episode to start with the fundamentals, if you'll indulge me. As the saying goes, reading is fundamental, and one thing is for sure, we've all had a book or two give us more insight about who we are and where the world is. Learning from Chicago's history is no different. Countless books and stories have documented our great city, but as we've all, but as we've all witnessed the polarization of our society across the country, the police brutality, suppressed voting access, and harmful legislation, among others, we know that not everything we hear or read about is true or positive to the progress so many of us have tried to make in moving this country forward. In a time when books are being banned and certain subjects are being restricted from curriculums, it's scary to even think about what the future holds for the next generation if we aren't too careful. Joining me today to discuss what it means to rewrite history and how we ensure truth prevails is former artistic director and cultural strategist for Looking Glass Theater, Arki Adams, as well as newly appointed managing editor of the Chicago Defender, Takuma Roback. We'll be right back to learn more about our key in Tacoma and get into a word. I'm Anna Valencia, one of your hosts for Joy in the Breakthrough. On our next episode, Con and I will discuss being caregivers. Caregiving is one of the greatest gifts life can give, and it also can be one of the most stressful. In the caregiving role, it is how do we define that for ourselves because we can also become the crusader and yes. my goal was not to be the martyr. Tune in this Monday at 7 p.m. on CAN-TV Channel 19, streaming on CAN-TV.org and now available on the new CAN-TV Plus app. Welcome back. Whether born and raised in Chicago or a transplant to the city, it's likely you understand very well how easy it is for Chicago's history to be lost amid many shifts and changes even without the impending threat of book bans and restricted curriculum. Here to share more on the preservation of history and authentic narratives is Arkey Adams, former artistic director and cultural strategist for Looking Glass Theater and managing editor of the Chicago Defender, Tacoma Roback. Welcome, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about your former role at Looking Glass Theater. I suppose that one of the reasons that I've been invited today um, was a recent sort of uh, nugget of history that I stu stu stumbled upon um, in co-curating uh, the Looking Glass Theater event, Sunset 1919, which is the commemoration of the Chicago race riots of 1919, um, which started by uh, the death of Eugene Williams, 17-year-old uh, Eugene Williams, 
who was uh, in effect murdered by George Stauber. Um, and so I had participated the year before, mm -hmm. uh, and I have a particular knowledge of the city and the city's history, and so I felt comfortable taking this on. And when I started, one of the first pieces of jur contemporary journalism having been written about the event was actually from Chicago Magazine. Uh, and there's a gentleman, Robert Lohler, I think is the pronunciation, forgive me, Robert, um, who he wrote, he's written a book about the race riots, but he also wrote this article for Chicago Magazine. Uh, and there's lots of firsthand accounts in there. And very early in this, in this article, there's a quote uh, from Ida B. Wells that was curiously, uh, not a quote, but uh, actually it is a quote from an article that she'd written in the Chicago Daily Tribune, which we know is the Chicago Tribune. And this article was dated uh, July 7th, 1919. Um, and it's, it all but predicts the events of July 27th, 1919. And so I found it curious because Ida B. Wells in this article is suggesting that this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so if Ida B. Wells knew that, there must have been events that led sure. her to believe this. Um, and you know, long story short, what I quickly determined is that there had been riots already happening in the mm -hmm. city. Uh, and that July 27th, and even the culmination uh, with the unfortunate killing of Eugene Williams, like the only unique part about that moment in Chicago's history was that the black people actually retaliated. Mm -hmm. In the previous riots, it was pretty much a nonstop campaign of white supremacist violence. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is pretty much what Ida B. Wells is, is urging the city to take action on before something terrible happens, mm -hmm. before we reach calamity. And sure enough, that's what happened. Um, and the consequences uh, of recalling the moment at the end of July as the beginning is what sort of sparked this interest for me, that mm -hmm. this is the thing we should discuss. And a lot of the, the coverage that we contemporarily look back, look back at from that time comes from the Chicago Defender. Mm -hmm. And so I, I invited them to come and see the event as well. Um, and that this was just something I thought we should be in conversation about, particularly as uh, the city has moved to commemorate that date more and more. Yes. Uh, we have to, actually be mindful of acts of uh, essentially erasure. Yes. We can't at, at once, you know, uh, erect monuments to Ida B. Wells and rename streets after Ida B. Wells um, and not take heed to her actual work. Yes, yes. How, really what it amounted to me as a testimony. Mm-hmm. Now, Takuma, you covered the, the Sunset 1919 event. What, was what did you find interesting about that event? What I found interesting about that event was that it was an acknowledgement that this event still, reverber still reverberates through time and it still is impactful on this city's history. Uh, I had the good pleasure of covering this event and covering a bike tour of the sites associated with the uh, Chicago race riots uh, through CR 1919. Mm -hmm an organization that's uh, led by Peter Cole and Franklin Kosi Gay. I hope mm -hmm. I'm saying his you name are. correctly. Mm -hmm. um, and so both, I think both 
uh, events. The privilege for me in covering both events and writing about them is being able to talk to people uh, such as Arki, uh, such as Franklin and Peter about how uh, this traumatic, most violent, uh, most violent episode of, uh, I'm sorry, um, the most, uh, how should I say this? the biggest episode of racial violence in the city's history, mm -hmm. uh, how that has led to segregation, how that has led to the constructing of the Dan Ryan as mm -hmm. a uh, marker of division between Bronzeville and Bridgeport, and then Sunset 1919, how do we commemorate, how do we address the spiritual wound that mm -hmm. remains from this event? So being able to chronicle both events firsthand and seeing how they are still important and articulating that. And as Arki said, um, covering these events so there isn't an erasure, covering these events so that people understand that this isn't a long ago history. This is yes. still very current, very relevant. It still reverberates today and it still is at the root of a, a lot of politics locally in the city. Mm -hmm. Now, help me understand, I mean, both of you all have had to explore some pretty deep histories. What has been the process for you as a lifelong learner, as a journalist? What has been your process for just identifying and uncovering this information? I, I will say that I was really struck. There's so many people far more capable of this that I know personally sure. uh, who I would love uh, to, to have them put their minds on this. Um, I think what is sort of, uh, it started to sort of spread out uh, the implications, the ramifications of this uh, and how we have to be careful um, with how we functionally define history. Mm -hmm. like, they just sort of to like reverberate all the way to, at a national scale. For instance, when people recall the Red Summer of 1919, Chicago stands out as the most, one of the most deadly, mm -hmm. right? It, Chicago is immediately referenced. But if we listen to Sister Ancestor Ida B. Wells, the, the tallies for the, Chicago for the Chicago riots have to start way earlier mm -hmm. than they do. And what do those numbers then look like? That changes the data, mm -hmm. right? So it, it potentially changes the way we even view this history. Rather than this ha having been um, riots composed of mutual combatants, yes. right? Or was this a community defending itself on uh, against what had been an onslaught? Sure, sure. Right, like that's a very different narrative. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's just something collectively we should think about. Mm -hmm. And Takuma, what is your, what's your process for uncovering information like this? Well, uh, I have to say, as the managing editor for the Chicago Defender, I have a responsibility to uh, keep uh, important historical stories and figures um, current and relevant that people know about them, uh, to know about the rich and vibrant black history of Chicago. That, that's a responsibility along with the other things that we cover. And so for, uh, the race riots of 1919, of course, the Defender was at the forefront of telling that story. There was a, a headline uh, calling the corridor of 35th and State as the vortex of violence where um, the most casualties occurred during the race riots. Um, and so that helps to uh, kind of color the moment. And so um, because that moment is so significant, 
it's up to us to go back to our um, our archives to be able to unearth important details about historical events such as the race riots or even historical figures. Um, for example, uh, Gwendolyn Brooks had a birthday mm -hmm. in June um, and so one of the things that we do is go back in the archives and find uh, the story that we've written about her um, and being able to keep telling that story because it's still important. Mm -hmm. um, it's important that, you know, in the 1950s before the Pulitzer, she was living in a kitchenette apartment on 63rd and how her life experience translated to her art and why that's still important. Mm -hmm. I mean, respectfully, the Defender was the first to tell the, the black story for Chicagoans. So in helping to shape and shift and, and shift, shape, shift, and really cultivate that narrative, what have been some of the tools you all have utilized to, to make that possible? Definitely our archives uh, is one way that we do that. Um, but also I would say that, right, um, history isn't something that's way back long ago. It's also going on right now. Um, and so through our events like Men of Excellence, Women of Excellence, um, I think those are important to remind people that among us, um, there are some people doing very terrific and amazing things in this community who often get overlooked because again, this is about combating um, stereotypes and narratives that may not be true. And there's this narrative about our city that others may have, um, that there's this narrative about our city that's kind of like become a political dog whistle. I'm not gonna say any names. So it's up to us to chronicle what's going on right now in our times, whether it's the black business renaissance that's going on in this very city, the rich culture that still goes on in this city. It's important for us to capture the figures, the organizations, and the movements of this time through events like Men of Excellence, Women of Excellence, and our journalism. Is it safe to say that that is among the Defender's own pedagogy for digital storytelling? Well, um, I would say that uh, especially with, uh, and I hate to boil things down to marketing terms, sure. everybody uses the word brand, my brand, sure. what is our brand? Sure. But when you dig into the archives and you see that Langston Hughes had a column for the Defender, Ethel Payne crafting stories for the Defender, Ida B. Wells, and so on and so forth, there is a responsibility <laughs> to tell historical stories that matter, um, especially if we've covered them in the past. Mm -hmm. And to, again, on the anniversaries of whether it's a person or an event, reminding people, hey, we wrote about this, but here's why this is important. Um, here's why the loss of um, Harry Belafonte is so important, mm -hmm. is so uh, massive. Going back and finding the article in Defender where he talks about uh, being a producer for his own film way back in the 50s, one of the first black producers of a film. I find it very fascinating that when we look back at historical figures like Mr. Belafonte, as you mentioned, 
oftentimes the folks who recall his era are among us. You know, they have stories of their own, many of our elders. Have there been any elders in your lives that have helped to really shape how you view the world? Oh my gosh, there's so many people. When he was rattling off names of people who've written for The Defender, I was reminded of reading as a girl, uh, Vernon Jarrett. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that column meant to me and how it started a lifelong, really nasty habit of me reading <laughs> papers every morning. Yes. Right? And columns that I both love and love a little bit less. But I'm also reminded of how the, the past is always with us. Even in just listening to Takuma, um, Gwendolyn Brooks had her work banned. Fortunately, we are now in the great state of Illinois, um, having been one of the first, or I think the only state, to ban book bans. Mm-hmm. While, um, you know, our our state states like Arkansas or Florida, uh, or God forbid, what's happening in Texas with the transforming libraries into detention centers. Um, the past is always present. Yes. Because what happens is when we, as you know, time goes, you know, we get past, say, sunset 1919. Now we have to look at housing policies mm. yes. in this city, right? Yes. And you can follow that thread all the way to something like Tanika Johnson equity yes, for sale. Absolutely. Right? And so I think that it's 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 important that when someone like Ida B. Wells leaves a receipt yes, from twenty days prior yes. to the event, we take heed to that. Yes. Right? Thank you. Um, I respect my elders. Thank you. Whether they are with us or thank you. Not. We'll be right back with final thoughts from our guests and from me. A word. Hello, I'm Bianca Cotton, host of Behind the Confidence Mail. Tune in Monday at 7.30 p.m. on CanTV19, CanTV.org, and CanTV Plus app for an engaging discussion about Deborah's journey from incarceration to becoming a CEO. When you start feeling your body going left instead of right, get you some help right away. Welcome back. Arki and Takuma, as we reach the close of our first episode, we know there's misinformation out there. How do we make this right? And how do we ensure that truth tellers are properly properly credited for their work? I think it is really high time um, that we really began to privilege uh, the first person sources that we have amongst us. Like you said, the people who were there for these moments, and who have have taught and relayed this information, uh, relayed our, this information to us. Um, in the instance that I've been talking about, that that little quote from Ida B. Wells was a life raft, mm-hmm. right? So really privileging those sources, even if they're not the same sources that everyone else is using. Mm-hmm. Tacoma. I think of just doing my job and adhering to best practices as a journalist. Um, I think that that's gotten lost, unfortunately, um, for a variety of reasons. I don't want to go into a spiel about it, about why it's lost, but I will say that um, privileging those first uh, person sources, as our key says, and always including multiple perspectives in our journalism in order to capture some semblance of truth that is accurate. Um, identifying the stories that matter um, and being able to curate them, that is a skill. And that, you know, I think that that only comes and that only flourishes with 
an attitude of lifelong learning, right? Mm -hmm. um, being curious about the environment around you, about the people around you, about the, your community, being curious about the issues that impact them, identifying those issues such as climate change, for example, which is a whole nother thing that Absolutely. needs to be chronicled. Absolutely. Um, I think is important to guard against that misinformation and erasure doing the job how it's supposed to be as as old school I am an old school journalist um, as old school as that sounds yeah you know you, you bring up a really good point that I think is important to understand that even as a legacy organization there's still much that we can learn about capturing those stories and, dis and disseminating those stories and even in a lot of that learning there's a matter of like becoming an example that other up-and-coming outlets and organizations can really can really look to like how how might you speak to the position that the defender has held when it comes to black storytelling well, uh, I'm going to be a little confessional here. It's a battle, right, because we have uh, a certain readership. And in order to, I think, grow, uh, in order to maintain, in order to appeal to people, we have to also tell stories in a multimedia way. We have to use social media. And sometimes when we do that, um, the... Uh, best practices of journalism can get lost. Sure. And so um, that's a constant mm -hmm. battle between alternating between what I call vegetables and candy, the information that is good mm -hmm. for you and the information that tastes good, you know. Um, you know, but there's value in both. So as uh, the Chicago Defender grows, it's wonderful that we're continuing to tell these historical stories. It's also wonderful that we're able to highlight a slice of Chicago culture, like mm -hmm. footworking, somebody footworking. Yes. That's still important. That yes. is history. Yes. That shows our creativity. That's part of the story, right? Yes. And so it's continuing to monitor that balance, continuing to honor it, but being mindful of who we are. Yes. Arki, you mentioned your first taste of black media um, in the columns that you were reading even as a girl. Takuma, what was your first taste of black media? Wow. Oh, gee. The Amsterdam News. I'm a, I'm a New Yorker. Um, well, I'm an adopted Chicagoan. Yes. I am a Chicago adopted son. Hopefully people will take that. Um, yes. Tavern style pizza over New York pizza. I said it, yeah. <laughs> Don't at me. <laughs> <laughs> but growing up in Brooklyn, New York, it was the Amsterdam News, mm -hmm. right? That was, uh, you know, still a, a, a black newspaper that is, um, I think, also uh, right up there with the Defender in terms of its importance to us. Um, I am a product of the Great Migration. Mm -hmm. My family did emigrate or did come from South Carolina to New York mm -hmm. and Virginia to New York. And so my very first taste, I have to say, the Amsterdam News. So I, 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 will, I will date myself slightly. Um, my very first taste of black Chicago, or black media in general, um, was grammar school. When I was in grammar school, if you want an honor roll, the defender would print your name in the paper. That's right. And I imagine the first time I was on the honor roll, sure, I need, I, you know, get good grades. Cause, but once I knew my name could be printed in the paper <laughs> for getting good grades, 
that changed the game. The incentive was just different. And I can't tell you, even as an adult, what it feels like for that measure of black excellence, even at that very young age, to be celebrated in that way. What are some ways that you all might suggest we celebrate black excellence here in the Chicago and here in Chicago presently? I think the shortest and sweetest answer is by supporting our institutions. Mm -hmm. um, so whether that is the Bud Billiken Parade or it's the Center for Arts and Public Life or Fortune House Gallery, um, those are or Inglewood Arts Collective, um, supporting our institutions, both current and past. Um, I think it's all necessary. It's 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 tough out here uh, in the current climate, and I think all hands on deck is is necessary. So really being each other's harvest to take it back to Gwendolyn Brooks, the girl is good. The girl is good. Uh, but we are one another's <laughs> harvest. So I think it's about supporting one another. Tacoma? Can you re restate the question? Absolutely. How might you suggest we celebrate black excellence today in Chicago? Um, well, I have to say shout out to Diana Lewis, the publisher of the Chicago Defender for programs like Men of Excellence. I'm sorry, Women of Excellence, Men of Excellence, um, because I think those are important uh, programs that uh, again, honor those people who are doing the work in the community. And I agree with our key. We have to be collaborative in terms of highlighting what, there's so many organizations doing great things Absolutely. in this community. And that's one of the things that, I, I kind of knew that before I had this job, but being in this role, um, there's so many organizations that are doing worthy work that need to be highlighted, that Absolutely. are in our very backyard. Again, that is a uh, part of the, um, the chronicling, right? That's part of the depiction, that's part of the preservation of the history that's going on around us so that people will know. Yes. This is what Chicago is about. I would be remiss if I also did not shout out organizations like so, that also are worthy of our supports, like the Black Archives Project, uh, Project NIA, that work very specifically on combating things like erasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you both for those references. Thank you, Arki and Takuma, for joining us today. And I really do appreciate this conversation. You can read the Digital First Chicago Defender by visiting their news site at chicagodefender.com. And make sure to follow All Things Public Narrative by visiting publicnarrative.org and following us at Public Narrative on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and X, formerly known as Twitter. This has been the Public Narrative, a word with Jamira Alexander. See you next time. <laughs>